We'd like to thank our friends at Sleep Number for sponsoring the Thrive Global Podcast. Sleep Number is changing the way we sleep with their latest beds, the Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds. They automatically adjust on each side to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast on iHeartRadio. My guest today is one of the most successful women in business, a thought leader, and a dear friend of almost 30 years. We first met when we were both on the board of Do Something. She's the president of Ariel Investments, the largest minority-owned investment company in the world. She's vice chair of the board at Starbucks and on the board of J.P. Morgan. She also has a prominent fan club that borders on being cultish. Jeffrey Katzenberg says she has a grace about her that is singular. Sheryl Sandberg says she's a big part of the path her life has taken. Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz says, when I think of her, I think of Grace. She's the most unique individual. And I call her fearless, a powerful creator, and a fierce friend. Melody, welcome to to the Thrive Global Podcast. I'm so glad this worked out. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. There's so much to talk about. And uh, I actually first interviewed you 12 years ago for a book I was writing then on becoming fearless. And I went back and read some of the things you said then, including how you were growing up. And it's just amazing to read, you know, the fact that you... You were being evicted. Your life was incredibly uncertain. And that this left a kind of angst. And I want to know, first, what was it like? And second, has the angst gone? So first of all, I cannot believe it's been 12 years, which where did that time go? It was like yesterday we were talking (laughs) about that subject. Um, And somehow it's still very relevant. (laughs) So um, it's good to revisit it time and again. When I grew up, my mom was in the real estate business, and I was the youngest of six kids. And I was really young in my family. So my oldest sisters are a couple decades older than me, but we have the same mother. I'm the only Hobson in my family. We have a different father. My mother worked extraordinarily hard for for lots of reasons. I mean, I get all of my work ethic from her. She didn't believe that you should ever, ever sleep past six in the morning, no matter what. It didn't matter if it was summer vacation or a Sunday. She thought the world would be passing you by. And all of that still lives in me. But despite her work ethic and trying so hard, she had a very hard time making ends meet. And because of that, on many occasions, we would get evicted or our phone disconnected or our lights turned off. And sometimes we lived in some of the apartment buildings that she was developing in mostly abandoned apartments, and we would heat water for baths and things like that. And while it was incredibly challenging and uncertain and did create a great deal of anxiety in me as a child and probably anxiety that still lives in me as an adult, I would say that it did give me a great sense of purpose and made me the person that I am. So I don't in any way, I wouldn't want to relive it, but I don't regret those times because I think the reason I'm in the financial services business is precisely because of my uncertainty about money as a child. And the reason that I do a lot of the things that I do is so that people can have better lives. But what is interesting is that even though your circumstances have dramatically changed, that angst kind of has remained in some way. I hope you no longer think you're going to end up as a bag lady. I remember you saying that. Well, it's interesting because my husband always says to me that whatever happens to you as a child stays with you. And it gets magnified because you don't have critical thinking skills as a child. And so things are big. I think that's really, really true. And even though my circumstances have changed, I can't shake that part. It does live in me in a very real way. I still work today as if I need the meal at the end of the day. And I put all of myself into my efforts on a daily basis um, because I don't know how to work any other way. I think that anxiety has fueled me, and I don't think it's always healthy. So I want to be very clear that I don't think living with anxiety is a good thing. And I have worked really, really hard to calm that part of me that feels that level of insecurity that at this point doesn't make sense. But I can't tell you that I've wrestled it to the ground yet. 
I remember you saying that um, sometimes you would pay your phone bill and your mortgage for the entire year so that at least if something really went wrong, you would have a roof over your head and a phone. Yes, I did. I would. My phone bill would come and it would be for, let's say, $50 and I would send $500. And my whole idea was that if anything went wrong, I would say to myself, well, you have 10 months of phone. Literally, I was in my 20s doing this. I bought an apartment when I was 24, 25 years old, and I paid it off in five years because I could not live with the idea of having a mortgage. It just really upset me. I said, what if something goes wrong? I won't have a place to live. That probably wasn't the best money management skill, giving (laughs) the, the phone company and the mortgage company the float. But I would say that it did make me feel better. It did. So, so you know, if it scale, made me feel better, that that's all that matters. Absolutely. But on a scale of 1 to 10, if, let's say, the anxiety started at 10, where is it now? I probably live at a um, 4, you know, honestly. Um, I, don't, I, have, I don't think I've ever seen a 1. But I think that's a pretty good accomplishment. And I think also part of that comes from shifting priorities and understanding what really matters. And I think another part of it comes from the confidence of knowing that if something did go wrong, I know how to survive. You know, I joke with people all the time, if tomorrow something happened and I had to go and sell shoes at Neiman Marcus, I'd be the number one salesperson in the country. Well, and I'm selling, very confident of that. Selling shoes and clothes would be a special forte. But I'm just saying, <laughs> if I had to do it, I know how to do that. I know how to hustle. And so I think that lessens the anxiety of knowing you just deal with what comes and have confidence in yourself that you can prevail. And since you mentioned shoes, you know, I have to jump to clothes and shoes. When did your love for clothes manifest itself? Um. This is a hilarious story, and it's 100% true. I was in high school. I was in my freshman year at St. Ignatius College Prep in Chicago. One of my sisters used to pick me up from school every day. This is my sister, Pat, who I'm very, very, very close to. And Pat had a couple of kids, and she was really busy, but every day she'd come and get me from school. And one day she picked me up, and I'm standing waiting outside of the school, and she looks at me, and she says, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, what? And she says, you're wearing plaids and stripes. Not in a good way. I had on a (laughs) pair of plaid pants that were wool, and I had a seersucker sailor shirt with it. (laughs) And my sister, she was like, get in the car, get in the car immediately. And she took me shopping, and we literally bought clothes, and we put them on layaway. You know, we couldn't take them home with us. And she was like, you have to have some better clothes. This is awful. And for some reason, that like sparked a fire in me that I like started caring. And I started reading about clothes. And I don't know, I became very interested in them. And it was from that day when she told me how bad I looked, (laughs) as only your sister can do. And it was 100% true. Like, I look back, I know, I can remember the outfit to this day. Who puts seersucker with wool plaid pants? I mean, it's like crazy. Sailor top. <laughs> but now it's it's become like such an expression of you. Yes, it is. And, you know, it's just, you know, I tell people it's a hobby. People have very expensive hobbies. They collect expensive cars or buy $5,000 bottles of wine or do other things. And I have clothes. And maybe that also comes from the scarcity. When I was a little kid, my mom used to buy Peter Pan color shirts for me at the Goodwill. And I remember to this day, we'd go to the Goodwill and she'd buy a stack of shirts and they would have the price tag stapled onto the sleeve. Stapled, where someone would write 25 cents and then just staple it onto the sleeve. And I remember saying to my mom, I want tags. I want tags. Like, I want tags that hang, not stapled prices. And so, you know, there was a little bit of that. And I'm sure I looked perfectly fine and, you know, there was nothing there that we were always clean and, you know, well presented. Um, And my mom, she always cared a lot about how we looked. And that was part of our downfall at times because my mother would buy us Easter dresses instead of paying the phone bill. And so that also lived in me, those priorities that weren't always perfect. But I think bottom line for me is it is an expression. I think people have this idea, especially when you work in the financial services world of what you're supposed to be. And I like to be a little bit different than what is expected. And my clothes become a way for me expressing my own sense of self. And it's very unique. And I've also 
heard you say once during a speech that sometimes being African-American makes you have a different connection to clothes. Like that if you wore sweatpants and a T-shirt or something, you would be seen differently. Well, there's no question about that. I mean, I think people see race before they see gender. And because of that, um, I think a lot about that. When I walk into certain rooms, how will I be received? And one of the things you want to do, you want to be able to make as many connections as possible and to knock down barriers and obstacles. And so being well presented, I think, makes a big difference. And, you know, my mom had this thing about she she just like did not think you should leave the house in sweatpants. And I went through this phase of my adult life where I was, you know, was wearing sweatpants all the time on the weekends. And I was like, listen, if I'm not going to the gym, I'm not putting sweatpants on or flying a long distance. But I do think there's a little bit to that. I remember running into someone, a big CEO on the street once in New York after, you know, running out on a Sunday, not really pulling myself together. And all I could remember in my mind was thinking, my mom is right. You never know who you're going to see. <laughs> you know, I wish I had looked a little bit better when I saw that person. But I do think the race thing does play a role in it because I think that it's subconscious. It's not conscious bias. It's subconscious bias where people, it's unconscious where they are, they will nick you for things. And it could be something as simple of what as what you were wearing. And so it's something that I think a lot about. So I've been trying to convince you for a few years about the importance of repeats, but I think it's a campaign I'm losing. <laughs> I don't see you very much. That's the problem. You think I don't repeat. I, 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 you know, I don't see you very much. I have things that I love and I wear all the time, but you know, that's, you know, that's just a part of me. It's a very small part. You know, at the end of the day, what do I want? I want someone to think that I was thoughtful and kind. That is the most important thing, not what I was wearing, not what I look like. You know, those things matter to me personally, not to, you know, my, my idea of how I want to be perceived in the world. What I most want to be perceived in the world as, as someone who's, again, smart and kind. And it, that matters more to me than anything else. And repeat or not repeat or any of those things, you know, that's in the background for me. The bigger issue are the ideas. And that is absolutely something that drives you and that you've talked a lot about ideas and how do you change the world and what contribution are you making. And And right now, one of the themes that you've talked a lot about is the theme of bravery and whether it is um, being color brave, as you put it, as opposed to color blind, or whether it's bravery in the way we live our lives or the contributions we make. Of course, I love that. I called it fearlessness. You call it brave, but it comes down to that same quality in our humanity. So how did that become so important to you? Well, part of it was speaking to you. And part of it was observing the world. And part of it was trying very hard to be intellectually honest with myself. So I did buy into this idea, and I think you first said it to me, that you can't be brave without fear. And understanding that fear is just a natural part of life. It exists, and everyone has it. And the people who are brave are the people who overcome that fear, and they're able to walk through it. And I always thought about, you know, what holds us back in society, as a society and as people, and I think it's fear. It can be fear of others. Fear of failing, fear of the unknown. There are a lot of things that lead us to not live up to our full potential. And I think a lot of that has to do with fear. So a long time ago, I decided that being brave was a better answer, even if I failed and even if it didn't work out the way I wanted it to, that being brave was the right way to go. And I sit in meetings, I see it. I see people not speak their truth because they're scared of what people will say. I see it in this idea around race and gender, where this idea of limiting yourself to that which you know in a homogeneous setting because you don't know or understand something that's different and maybe you're a bit afraid of it leads to a lack of tolerance and, you know, in its worst state, wars and worse. So I just have decided for me this idea of fear and bravery is something that I've made a part of my mantra and it's in everything it's i see it in stock market investing where people will you know they move between euphoria and fear and make bad decisions because of it being guided by emotions and making investment decisions is a sure way to fail and it happens every single day so it's it's just been a concept that i've grabbed onto 
And I've really decided that the brave way is the better way to go. And I understand people say, well, easy for you to say, or no, I have moments of of fear as well. But I do find myself talking to myself in my head and getting myself to pull myself up and to stand up. An issue that happened a couple days ago, and my husband said to me, he's like, you remember, be brave. He said, you know, remember, persevere. I just read that book by Angela Duckworth on grit that I've just been marveling about. And he was like, grit, Melody, grit. And I woke up the next day with a whole new sense of self. I can do this. So even me, I talk to myself and I talk myself off the ledge all the time when these things come up. But I do think you can get a lot of satisfaction out of overcoming. And I love the story of um, you pitching and getting the account of United Airlines Pension Fund. (laughs) And literally telling them when they ask you, why should they give you the account, that I wish I could jump on the table, grab you by the lapels, and tell you this is the best decision you could make. Now, that takes bravery. It's so, But I knew in my heart that I was right. I just did. You know, it was we had come off of a difficult performance period at Ariel, and I could see that we were going to have a very, very good time ahead of us. And you never know, you know, because it's a stock market and you can't predict. But we saw the value of these companies that we had in the portfolio. And I knew how hard we were working. And I thought we were smart. And I'm sitting with this individual. And I said to him, you know, I want to grab you by the lapels. I want to explain to you. Now, the great thing is it did work out extraordinarily well. We ended up being their number one money manager. He said to this day, you were so compelling and you were also right. And, you know, that that's you know, obviously deeply gratifying, but I didn't feel fear in that situation. And I think fear can be tampened down a lot by knowing, being educated and informed and being confident. You know, confidence can overcome that and and create that bravery. You know, I was not in any way unsure of myself in that meeting. I just wasn't. Well, that's part of your conviction. Right. You know, that was what you believed and you expressed it. Now, finance has been kind of the boiler room of the burnout culture. How are you handling that at Ariel? Well, I think that the one thing about the financial services business is, which is makes it so compelling for so many of us and makes it so hard as well, is every single day there's a score. We know how we mm-hmm. have done at the end of the day, every day. So that's one thing. Now, I know there are a lot of businesses where that's true. You know what kind of sales you've done if you're Starbucks at the end of the day, what have you. But ours, we know in a very specific way. I guess if you play basketball, you know if you won the game or not. The thing about our score is that we get a score, we go to the next day, and it starts over again every single day, every single year. And there's no finish line. That's what we always say at Ariel in terms of what we do. We talk about slow and steady wins the race, and we have a turtle as a logo, but we say there is no finish line. You are never done. So that idea of no finish line can be all-consuming. It really can. And for some people, that can be very hard to manage. That can be especially hard if you manage global portfolios that where a market is open around the world at all times. And the way we try to manage it is to we give people a lot of autonomy, a lot. We don't micromanage any individuals that work inside our firm. They work with they are trusted to do their work, however they do it, whenever they do it. They're trusted to do it. And I think as a result of that, that autonomy is incredibly liberating for lots and lots of people. But if you are someone who needs a tremendous amount of structure and to to check in with someone every day, you won't succeed at Ariel. It won't work very well for you because that kind of setting does not exist for us. I think the other way that we deal with um, burnout and people at our firm have worked at our firm for decades, including me. I've only had one job. This is my 28th year at my firm. And I'm not 50. I'm 49 years old. I've had one job. And so I think the other way that we deal with it is we get to solve exciting problems all the time. And that's highly fulfilling. We wake up with a sense of purpose. And we remember every single day, and I say this to people that I work with, you see billions of dollars in terms of what we manage. And I always remind them, it's people. It's someone's college 
fund. It's someone's retirement money that they're going to buy that house in South Carolina or that boat that they want. I love the line that Chuck Schwab has at Schwab. He says, around here, we feel like we're curing cancer. We feel the exact same way. We're giving people better lives. And so that breaking it down to people and lives and actual goals that they have for themselves around the decisions that we make, I think takes us to a higher level of purpose. And when you have purpose, I think you're less likely to have burnout. And also, you know what works for you. Part of that autonomy is to know when you perform at your best and what you need to perform at your best. And it's interesting. You know, we all, a lot of us read this book many, many years ago about, believe it or not, Vince Lombardi. And it's called When Pride Still Mattered. It's one of my favorite books by David Moranis. And Vince Lombardi has a line in the book where he says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Yes. And it's one of my favorite lines. And I really thought a lot about it because I used to be that person who would like sleep under my desk. And I'm like, well, I can't make any good decisions if I'm really, really, really tired. And then I started to look at data like on a daylight savings time when we fall back and we have an extra hour – Car accidents go down the next day. People have less heart attacks. Like, it's documented. So while I'm not out preaching how much sleep they should get (laughs) inside of Ariel and certainly still need to work on that myself, I do believe that we have tried to create a culture and an environment where people can, I'll use your word, thrive and thrive in their own way by figuring out what is best for them. We don't prescribe a way. I think that's one of the things about Ariel that makes it very magical for people. But at the same time, we have extraordinarily high expectations. So if you can find that intersection, that's who we are culturally. But the fact is, I like the fact that you mentioned data is key. Because if you are data-driven, you look at the data of what gives you your best performance. So this is not like a fuzzy nice to have. I mean, look at that. No, it's actually, I mean, I know for myself, for example, I do not perform well if I don't exercise. Now, some people say, for example, that sleep is more important than exercise sometimes, but I can tell you I need the endorphins. Like physically, I'm not right if I don't exercise in the morning. So there are days I'm really, really tired, but I still get myself to do something because I know I need those endorphins to kick in for my brain to work. Again, you know, that's just lots of data points of Different time zones, different places, waking up in different ways and trying to figure out how do you maximize your potential for each and every day, each and every hour, each and every minute. And I think that, again, inside of our firm, the data for us is around performance results. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. We know when we've done well and we know when we haven't done well and we know why. And so since we have that as a never-ending issue – you have the opportunity to tweak around that, if that makes any sense. Totally. And I remember once uh, on vacation, we shared a suite because there were no other rooms. And you would always be f- the first one up and immediately go to the gym while I was up making calls <laughs> and working <laughs> <laughs> and preventing you from going to sleep at night. So it's just like... The fact that since then, I've also learned to manage my time better. Yeah. Well, I think that comes with time and with age. You also get better at things. I can read the paper faster than I used to read it when I was 22 years old. I can I can do a lot of things more efficiently than I used to be able to do them. And I also know what I'm doing now. And so that helps. But I think the part about being the first one up, that's my mother. Yes. You know, my mother, I, to this day, I live in an apartment building in Chicago. When I wake up in the morning, I look out the window to see how many lights are on. Who got up before me? Because she put that in my head. Like, if you're sleeping, the world is passing you by. I've always wanted to be that early bird, but I also operate really well in the morning. I do not do well at night. I don't. And there are people who are morning people and there are people who are night people. One is not good or bad. They are just different. That is what I have learned. And the data shows as long as you get the sleep you need and ideally go to bed before midnight, that does make a difference. I cannot stay up till midnight. (laughs) I just can't. So uh, I'm not one of those people. I'm not functional late at night. I'm just not. But that's just me. But I can function at a very high level at 4 a.m. Amazing. So that's why you are good on morning television shows. I'm very good in the morning. <laughs> my brain is very alive. And at night, my brain collapses. I really, I, I have given everything I have during the day. And by the end of the day, I have nothing left. I can barely hold a conversation. And you don't have to. That's how you can arrange Well, I have a five-year-old, so I need but to But normally really talk she's to her. asleep by then, right? Well, <laughs> not always. 
And now I recently had the chance to sit down with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research for Sleep Number. We spoke about the connection between sleep and temperature. Temperature is one of those big things that is critical in regulating the amount and the quality of the sleep that we get. While most people know that our average body temperature is about 98.6 degrees, it does exhibit a wide circadian rhythm. It rises during the day to keep us alert, but then it free falls at night to help us go to sleep. Ironically, though, as our body temperature falls at night to put us to sleep as part of the sleep process, we feel hotter. Our hands, our head, and our feet warm up to get rid of heat out of the body so that our body temperature falls and we get into deep sleep. Fascinating stuff, right? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear my full interview with Pete. He always has the scoop on the latest sleep science. This sleep tip was brought to you by Sleep Number, the bed that knows you, senses you, and adjusts to you. Only at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. So let's talk about the five-year-old and um, your marriage and how it all started. You've, you've said something which I love, which is that love plus bravery, bravery again equals happiness. So it wasn't really that long ago when exactly, I'm trying to remember the date, when we were in your apartment in Chicago and you had just started dating George Lucas and you had just come out of a bad relationship. <laughs> and uh, and I felt incredibly protective of you, yes. kind of like a big sister, saying, oh, no, Melody, George Lucas, no, I don't think this is going to end well. <laughs> I think you should stop that immediately before you get hurt. <laughs> and I will never forget my terrible advice, <laughs> which thankfully you ignored. <laughs> and it's been such an amazing relationship. Yes. What makes it? So special and magical. Um, I mean, George would say that we're the same person, but we come in different packages. I don't think that that is exactly true, but I do think that there's a a soul connection that was just made. And at our wedding, Bill Moyers officiated our wedding, and he said as his first line, which you may remember, that when you fall in love, you meet your mind's best friend. And I met my mind's best friend. I think what makes it work so well is that we don't compete with each other in any way. He's an iconic person. I mean, I accept that. I know that. I'm proud of it. I celebrate it. And it is. It is a truth. He is an icon. And I think at the same time, he's just proud of me. And so together we, you know, are in awe of each other in a very, very healthy way. You know, I also joke that I alternate between being a head deflator and gravity boots with him. (laughs) I take a pen sometime and just stick it in his head um, and make it a little smaller. Um, But I think that we, we really do appreciate each other's unique gifts. And I think that idea of just being happy for each other and just more importantly, being happy to have found each other. I think there was a gift that was given to us that we found each other later I was 44 when we got married, 36 when we started dating. He was 62 when we started dating. And I think we had like, you know, saw very quickly, oh, my God, this is a miracle. And we still say it. And so that gratitude and appreciation to have found each other is what makes it very, very magical. Because it shouldn't have happened. We are very unlikely in so many ways. Age, race, California, Chicago, movies, finance. I mean, I could go through the whole list of things that it shouldn't make sense. But somehow the universe conspired to bring us together. And in doing so, it's perfect. And it produced Everest, your little girl who is now five. Who's also a miracle. I mean, we've had a surrogate. Um, It's, you know, there are a lot of funny stories about it, but it's a miracle. And so, you know, she's fantastic. We have other kids. George adopted three other kids. And so, you know, she's a, she's got older siblings, but she's, you know, a very unique soul who is the product of two very different brains. And we're seeing that play out in real life. And I'm very eager and excited to see what will become of her. And how different are you as a mother to what your mother was like? I'm very similar in some ways. My mom was very, very direct. I said she was brutally pragmatic. My mother was, you know, very, there was no you know, fairy tales or fantasy with my mother. So I still have that in me. My mother, I told the story when I was five years old, 
And I asked, I wondered what Santa would bring me for Christmas. She looked at me and she says, Melody, there is no Santa. Mommy is Santa. And the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. Like, she laid them all out. I was five. I mean, that is a little, like, a lot to take as a five-year-old. I was, even then, I was like, okay, this is a lot. And, you know, to this day, you know, George is Santa. George gets the Easter basket. George does the Halloween. George is, he's that person. I didn't grow up with that. You know, I never trick-or-treated in my whole life. And all of that stuff, I'm like, if that that is your department, <laughs> you take care of that. The Santa's is George's yes, department. The, He's very John, good at George that. George is very good at it. It has to be presented in a certain way. You know, the whole thing, he has to make magical. And he does a great job at it. And I just look from afar. You know, at Christmas, he buys all the gifts. I may get her one thing. You know, he just does the whole thing. I, I don't even... Yeah, I do. But he I goes to Toys R Us like 10 times. I hope you have not told her there's no Santa. I have not. He's devastated that Toys R Us does not exist. I mean, devastated. He took her so she could have a swan song and see it. Because he said, imagine growing up with no Toys R Us. <laughs> he thought it was the saddest thing. So he took her to Toys R Us before it closed <laughs> so that she could see it one more time. But no, I didn't tell her that there was no Santa. I don't plan on doing that. And also just being direct and having very high expectations of her. Not in a way of putting pressure on her and creating anxiety for her, but in a way in helping her to understand that she has won the birth lottery. You know, Warren Buffett says that if you're born in America, you've won the birth lottery. And in America, she's won the birth lottery. She has two loving parents. She will have the best education. She's been around the world already at five years old. She will have experiences that people will never have. These are facts. And I don't want her to ever take that for granted. I want her to live a life of gratitude and appreciation. I want her to understand the responsibilities that she has because she has been given so much. And I want to make sure she pays the world back for that. And I don't want to do that as a burden. I want to do that as just an expectation. But also, your mother was... uh a big believer in unconditional loving. So there is that side too. There is that side. I mean, I know this is going to sound really crazy. My mother was a big believer in unconditional love, but she also had lines that she drew. And, you know, I I would say this, you know, that, that I will do anything to make sure that Everest is able to thrive as a person and hopefully be a good person in our society. But if she does things that... I do not believe are right. I will be the first one to make sure she understands that there are conditions. You know, the example that I give all the time is I say, you know, my love is unconditional unless you're selling drugs to a kid. I'm not that's that's that there is going to be that like I will not love you if you do that. I'm telling you that right now. So I know that may sound harsh and that may sound, you know, but it is true. There are some expectations and there are some lines that cannot be crossed. And she's only five, but you're going to make that clear, I have no doubt. (laughs) Well, right now, I mean, I'm so concerned about the opioid crisis in America. I constantly say to her, we only take drugs from mom and dad and doctors, not from anyone else. I've been saying that since she was two. (laughs) Do not ever take any medicine from anyone else. I tell her that. I had to tell her the other day, which was just so interesting. I was thinking about, I walked into a bathroom at a movie, and these little kids, they were like 10, 11 years old, were vaping. And I literally, the other day, I told her about, you know, people smoking in bathrooms. I said, if you see little kids, don't ever, ever. They were literally like 10, 11 years old. They were small. And um, it's just strange to say that to a five-year-old. But the other thing that's troubling and that's universal is to see 10, 11, 12-year-olds having meals and being on screens, you know, the way that the screen addiction has exploded. It's so interesting you say that because I have made a conscious effort and I have had that phone attached to me. So trust me, this really has taken a lot of work to not have it at a table. I've made a conscious effort to not, I don't even take my purse when we go to a restaurant. I don't take a purse just so I I can't even be tempted to look. Mm. Um, It's my new thing. I won't take a purse when I go to a movie. And that's a big deal for me because I say I'm teaching her all of this and I want to stop it now. So I do think we have to be very deliberate. I do think there is addiction here and I'm sure suffer from it as well. We all do. I think it's great that now we see our screen time and we know – 
I was doing a little happy dance the other day because it popped up and said I had something like 22 minutes less of screen time than the week before. (laughs) And I was like, if I could chip away at this, this would be really great. So I do think that we have to be very, very careful. And we don't know what this is going to mean inevitably to the brain and to development and to certainly social skills where we see so many people sitting at dinner tables, not talking to each other. I just even find myself, you know, talking to people that I work with or with uh, teammates at home where, you know, they're texting each other from two different rooms. I'm like, uh, could you walk down the hall? <laughs> you know, is there a, why are you texting this person in the same house? So I do think that it's something we have to be very cognizant of. Everest is not going to have a phone. I'm not giving her a phone for – she will be in her mid-teens before she gets a phone. And my husband keeps saying, well, we'll see. I said, no, I'm not – She's not going to have one. I just, I don't want her to have that. I don't want her to live that life. She may be mad at me, but she can just be mad at me. It's kind of interesting because this awareness of the growing addiction to phones is very recent. You know, it's really last year that it actually became so prevalent. So I love to see what every person is doing to protect themselves and their children and I love the idea of not bringing a purse. I literally to a the restaurant. only I don't even want the purse. Like I want it. Yeah, not, because that absolutely because yeah. it's it's like if, if you are an alcoholic, you don't want drinks around. Right. So I'd love you to write about that because we are collecting how different successful people are handling the acknowledged addiction to tech. Yeah. No, I it's a hundred percent. I acknowledge it. I own it. I'm trying really hard to do better, but I'm more motivated to do better because I have a five-year-old and I believe she will model all of my behavior, so I have to stop it now. Fantastic. And George is much better than you are. He is, but the interesting thing now for him is he doesn't use a phone ever to talk. He's not one of these texters. He's just not that person, but he reads the news now on the phone. And that is a big change. I'll find him just sitting and reading news stories. So now let's talk about one of my favorite topics, sleep. (laughs) Um, How much do you get? (laughs) Wow. Um, It depends. Well, let's let's start with how much do you need. I need eight hours, but I don't always get it. Yes. But you know, but you being a data-driven person, you know that when you get eight, you are like at your peak performance. Best, for sure. Um, I don't always get it, and sometimes it's not a function of effort. It's a function of I came here last night from California, and even though I tried really hard, I knew I had an early wake-up, I was having a very hard time adjusting to the time zone, and waking up this morning was very challenging. And so probably last night I maybe got five and a half. It's not enough. Can you have naps? Are you a napper Sometimes I will nap if I'm driving – if I'm – being taken to the airport. I don't want to yeah. say driving because I don't want to mislead. But, you know, <laughs> if I'm in a car going to an airport, I love the warm seat. Yes. Like, I love the seat warmer. I always sit in the front because I like the seat warmer. And I will take a nap in the car. I'm not good napping on flights very much. Maybe occasionally I might doze off, but I'm not a good sleeper on airplanes. I try, but I'm not great. And I would never go in. I I am not a go lie down. Yes. Even on a Saturday or Sunday, I do not do that well. I can't. I would love to be able to take a nap, but I'm not a good person at that. And we talked about your phone. So do you sleep with your phone by your bed? My phone is charging by my bed, but I've made a concerted effort not to look at it. And uh, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you're not. I very, to very, go very, 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 very rarely now look at my phone in the middle of the night, and I can't say. Zero, but I would say probably 90% of the time, if I get up in the middle of the night, I do not look at my phone anymore. That is a very big change. And I would say before it was 10% of the time, I did not look at my phone. I brought you, you know, this new product that we have, which is a charging station that looks like a little phone bed and it has a little blankie. (laughs) It leaves outside your room. And you put your phone under the blanket, you tuck it in, you say good night, and then you connect with it in the morning. Interesting. And then you get just a beautiful, old-fashioned alarm clock <laughs> <laughs> to wake you up. So let, let's see. That, that, that might help. Because you've said once that reading material and phones are perishable. What did you mean by that? I meant that I think what I was meaning at the time was that it's, it's something that constantly 
perishes and recreates itself. So when you read, you're done reading and there's always more. You know, that that, that was my concept. Yeah, that there's always more. It's never email. ending. No, exactly. Yes. So let's end with some of the great speeches you've given recently a TED Talk, a USC commencement speech. People have urged you, some of your friends, not to talk as much about race. But I think what you've said about race is so important and so brave. And so I hope you are never going to listen to anybody who says, don't talk as much about race. You remember we were at that party together when I told you that I was doing that speech. And you remember the people that we were sitting with. And they were like, don't do it. Don't Don't do do it. it. You know, you're much more than race. And and I think often you find very successful African-American people who stop talking about it because they don't want it to define you. And of course, it doesn't define you. But you also have so much to say uh, that is so critical. So if there's one message uh, that you want uh, to leave the world with, what would that be? Well, it's interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a little bit and say this. I do think my race and gender define me. I'm very much defined by them. And I mean that in the best of ways. I embrace and love that. It has made me who I am, and it has given me the perspective that I have on the world in so many ways. And the eyes through which I look at the world and see things are filtered by those experiences. So it is a defining thing for me, and that is something I'm proud of. Um, Ask your question one more time. So my question is, what is the message of all the things you've said and written about race how would you distill it to one message to leave us with? So the, the the concept that I have is this idea of being color brave and not color blind is built on this thesis that many, many people over the years have said to me, I'm color blind, I don't even see race. They try to teach their children to be color blind and not see race. And as a result of that, I find that when they, if they're honest with themselves and they look around, they live in a homogeneous world. So I have said, you know what, let's start seeing race. Let's reject this concept of being colorblind because colorblind is not getting us there. So in seeing race, I want you to notice the absence of it in your life, and I want you to notice the differences and celebrate those differences. I am raising my child to be color brave. My child all the time will say, she came home from, from her first day of kindergarten, and she's like, Mama. I said, what? She says, there's a man at school. He looks exactly like you. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> What do you mean? He's like, he's brown just like you. (laughs) He looks exactly like you. I thought it was the funniest thing. I said, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, But she's she has been you know, she's not afraid to say things like that. And we don't have those. Those are not moments that are uncomfortable for us. They're wonderful things. And um you know, and it's it's something that I think is to be celebrated. And I think in celebrating and inviting people in your life who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't come from where you come from, you are enriched. It leads to a better life, to better outcomes, to a more tolerant to society. You are able to solve hard problems with the diversity of that thought. And I think that if people could truly understand that and that all the data proves it, you would actually mm-hmm. go about how you live your life in a different way. So I tell people, think about if you're in a PTA meeting and if everyone looks like you, you should say something's wrong with this. If you are hiring people for a team and you start to see the team have no diversity, what can you do about it? In the example that I give, I say, if I showed you a board, let's just make it up. It's ExxonMobil. That's the example I give in the speak. And ExxonMobil and the entire board were black. You would say, what is up with that? Why is it when we see an all-white male board, it doesn't even register? It doesn't register. When we walk into all-white male situations or all-white situations, it doesn't even register. And you have to say to yourself, what is wrong with this? And that's the beauty of and the gift that I've been given, that I can walk into that room and that I could be that other, and I can be curious about it. You know, I always tell people, when you're a person of color, black, Hispanic, we know more about you than you know about us. We do, because we've had to assimilate into your world. You don't know a lot about us. And when I start to give people examples of that and I explain to them what are some of the the cultural and quintessential things of being black, they're always amazed. Like, we have macaroni and cheese on Thanksgiving. 
we always use washcloths. You know, I could go through all these things that are just unique to us that, you know, other people do. But if I told you, like, it's kind of universal, uh, you know, that there's always this amazement about it. And so I know all the things from obviously being married to a white man, but also having grown up in many, many white environments. But I know that if they were put in the reverse situation, they would be extraordinarily uncomfortable and perhaps confused. And if that were true, then you say, well, what can I learn and what can I get out of this? And I think that there's so much to get out of it. You know, my daughter speaks fluent Mandarin, as many people know. And it's so great because we have people around us who I know a lot about Chinese culture because of that. A lot. And I feel enriched by that. You know, I, you know, my daughter said to me the other day, we were talking about animals and we were talking about what our favorite animal was. And she said, well, you know, you're a rooster. Well, I was born the year of the rooster. My five-year-old remembered that. That is an amazing thing. And when I was a rooster, when it was my year a couple of years ago, a year of the rooster, I wore a red piece of red string every day because red is good luck in Chinese. And when it's your year in China, when it's your year, you're supposed to wear red every day. And she's like, remember when you were wearing red every day? I mean, she was three at the time. It's such an amazing thing to know that she has that depth of understanding of cultures. So pushing this idea of being color brave is something that I think is is. It's not just conscience raising. It makes the world better. And it makes you as a person better. And what more could there be to pursue? And probably that's why you love that letter that Dubois wrote to his 14-year-old daughter that you quote. Tell us about it. I love this letter. So Du Bois wrote this letter. She was 13 years old, 13 or 14 years old. Daughter, her name was Yolanda. And she was being sent to boarding school in the UK, in Great Britain. And it was like 1913. I mean, I can't remember the year. It was, I maybe have that year wrong. And it's remarkable. He was sending this little black girl to boarding school by herself. And he writes this letter to her after she gets there. And he says things to her that are so profoundly moving and so amazing. But he's also, like my mother, this brutal pragmatist. And he explains to her that people are going to marvel about your crinkly hair and the color of your skin. But what matters is you beneath the clothes and the skin. He says that to her. And then he explains to her that she's going out into this unknown world. And my favorite line, he says, take the cold bath bravely. Mm-hmm. He knows she's going to go into this unknown. He knows cold water is going to be thrown on her. He says, take the cold bath bravely. And I literally got chills when I read this letter. Chills. Because it's everything that I believe, everything that I've experienced. And he tells her that she deserves where she is, but she also has to earn it. And I think that those are two very important messages, as I've said, that I'm trying to make sure that Everest understand. He, she deserves it, but she also has to earn it. He says, many children around the world would give anything to be where you are. Earn it. Deserve it. It's called The Letter to My Daughter, and I keep it on my desk. And it's to remind me about some of these concepts of being brave and being curious and deserving and earning at the same time who you are and what you are. That is such a beautiful way to live life and uh, to pass it on to your daughter and to so many people who admire you and learn from you every day. Thank you so much for being with us. What an inspiring morning. Thank you, Melody. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And to everybody listening... Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app and stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on new episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. And now I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research for Sleep Number. A thing that you and I have talked a lot about is um, our bedrooms. You know, for me, I've uh, turned my bedroom into a sleep sanctuary. Uh, I have dark curtains, lots of pillows, a great eye mask, and I pick a time every night before I go to sleep to escort my phone and my iPad out of my bedroom. So what's the connection between sleep and temperature? 
And what's the ideal sleep environment we should create in our bedrooms? Well, the sleep environment is super critical to getting great sleep. Even well-intentioned, if your bedroom is not set up for great sleep, it can be disruptive. And temperature is one of those big things that is critical in regulating the amount and the quality of the sleep that we get. While most people know that our average body temperature is about 98.6 degrees, it does exhibit a wide circadian rhythm. It rises during the day to keep us alert and vigilant so that we can be productive all the day. But then it free falls at night to help us go to sleep. That repeats itself all every 24 hours. Ironically, though, as our body temperature falls at night to put us to sleep as part of the sleep process, we feel hotter because the only way that our body can facilitate such a free fall in our core body temperature is to heat up the skin. Our hands, our head, and our feet warm up to get rid of heat out of the body so that our body temperature falls and we get into deep sleep. Now, if you can't manage that heat in the bedroom, it dis- it's disruptive to sleep. How many times have you turned over the pillow to find the cool side <laughs> because your head was hot all of a sudden? You went to bed comfortably, you woke up uncomfortably. That's to facilitate sleep. So you need to get rid of that. And the best way to do that, of course, is to be in a cool bedroom. You you talked about that. 65 degrees to 67 degrees is ideal so that heat goes away from the body into the environment. Circulation is really important. If you have a ceiling fan or a a fan in the room that blows air around and and makes it... uh, much more tolerable as far as heat around your body, lighter bedding during the warm warm days and humid days, and what you wear to bed is a, is a big difference. And I always recommend people to take a warm bath or a shower right before they go to bed. What that does is accelerates the skin warming so that all of that heat transfer happens when you're out of the bed. So when you go to bed, evaporation from the shower and the heat acceleration has already happened so it doesn't happen in the bed and you actually sleep more comfortably. Really good tips to help people get a good night's sleep. I love that. I always have a warm bath um, before I go to sleep. It also helps slow down your brain and your thoughts. Thank you so much, Pete. Thank you. And also thank you to our sponsor, Sleep Number. If you're not sleeping well, it could be your mattress. The Sleep Number bed knows, senses, and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably. This is not a bed, it's proven quality sleep. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive.